It's time for us to go to Genesis 37. We're only going to do the first part of that today. Genesis 37, 1 through 11. The Word of God. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of the others of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaths in the field. And behold, my sheath arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaths gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Let's pray. Father, according to the riches of your glory, grant that we would be strengthened with power through the Spirit in our inmost being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith, and that we may be rooted and grounded in love, and may have strength to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with the fullness of God. Accomplish this through the reading and preaching of your word. Amen. These days, it's getting hard to come up with an original idea for a movie. And that's why I find the movie Inception to be so interesting. Because it is an actual, brand new sort of idea for a film. Of course, it's done by Christopher Nolan, and I think his brother Jonathan was involved in that. And they're sort of very creative individuals piecing together these unusual worlds. And uh, what it has to do is with the capacity to enter into the dreams of another person. And so the main character had a business where he would do this, and he would it was basically a form of industrial espionage. And instead of breaking into safes to get secrets, they would break into people's minds through their dreams in order to get their business secrets for the competition. They decide at one instance 
that they're going to try something a little different. There is a rich man who is his, well, who's about to die. And what the problem is, is they want his son to break up the company. And so they have the idea of entering into his dreams to plant an idea into his mind, in his dreams, that would eventually come to fruition in space and time. So that his competitor would not have to destroy him, but would be able to come in after he sells off parts of the business. The idea of planting an idea into dreams that they might come to fullness. It's not as new as we might think if we're familiar with the scriptures. Because here we have not a man entering into the dreams of another man, but here we have God entering into a man's mind in his dreams and planting God's vision for his future. Right here in Genesis 37. We'll get there. But first we have some other stuff to deal with. Our big idea this morning is that God's purposes for his people are offensively gracious. We'll get that will become clear through all of this. In verses one and two, we see that our faithfulness is not without flaws. A couple quick things before we jump into that is that verse one seems to fit better with the previous chapter. Okay, because it has the idea of living in the land. And it builds on that notion that uh, Esau has left the land and now Jacob is able to live in the land. But then there's an, as a further thing, has the idea that his father sojourned in the land, but he dwells in the land. That change in word is meant to be, meant a shift is more permanent of what's going on. Verse 2 starts off again with that idea, these are the generations of Jacob. This is a Toledot. And what is the very first word that we read after the generations of Jacob? Joseph. The rest of this section of Genesis, here to the end, is really going to be primarily about Joseph and Judah. Jacob's going to be there. He's going, to, he's going to pop up even in today's text and some other texts. But the primary focus of the Toledot of Jacob is actually going to be Joseph and Judah as the foundation for God's people is laid. Another foundation, you know, building on the previous foundation. Another layer of that foundation is going to be laid. And it starts with the idea that Joseph, being 17 years old, Moses moves us back in time to a time before the death of Rachel. He's moved out of, of, of a chronological sequence because he's shaped it not chronologically. He has shaped this material according to his purposes, and he's got a slightly different purpose in mind here that will become a little more clear as we go along. And you will see as we look at this exactly why this is before that which we left off with. Okay, This is before the death of Rachel. There are clues within this text that indicate to us that Rachel is still alive. It is odd to me, anyway, that he is called a boy. It would be easy now to call him a boy, but then he was old enough to have married, to have already had children. As I thought about it this morning, I think it's part of the recognition that he's younger than the patriarchs are when their stories picked up. I mean, we don't find... 
Abraham until he is about 70. It doesn't pick up with Isaac until Isaac is over 40. The story of Jacob really doesn't get going until essentially he's over 40. The story of Moses basically jumps from his birth to when he's 40. And so it's, it's an anomaly, so to speak, that there is someone so young who is about to be used so significantly by God that Moses calls him a boy. Because from Moses' perspective, he was so young. So young. Where we find this boy is in the fields, because his father was a shepherd. It specifies that he is in the fields with the sheep, with his older brothers, the brothers specifically of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's concubines. These were the low-on-the-totem-pole sons, okay? because they are of Zilpah and Bilhah. But they're in the fields. And there's not much that is said there except this very significant thing that Joseph brought a bad report to his father. His brothers were guilty of something. We don't know what. Moses, perhaps to guard their honor in some respect, because after all, these are the patriarchs. These are the fathers of the 12 tribes. He does not say specifically what they did. But nonetheless, a bad report was brought, just as a bad report was brought about some secret servicemen recently. Okay? And it was serious. Serious enough that, it, that Joseph thought it had to come to the attention of his father, who is not just their father, but also the owner of the family business. It was not wise for him to kind of sweep this under the rug or or kind of ignore this thing. This was serious enough that he had to bring it to his father's attention. I'm reminded of Luke 16 as we look at this text overall, where Jesus says, One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. And so we see the groundwork laid here for Joseph's character. Now, his character is not perfect, as we're about to see as we look further in this text, but he has character. He has some measure of integrity that is on display before we see everything else about Joseph. But we have to be honest. No one likes a snitch, do they? One of the little subplots running through the disastrous beginning of yet another Red Sox season is who's the snitch? And there actually have been articles written about who was the one who ratted out the pitchers at the end of last season? Who's the one who said that they were drinking beer and eating fried chicken from Popeye's in the back room in the clubhouse while the game was still going on? Who's the snitch? His brothers, I'm sure, even though Moses is silent on this point, I am sure that his brothers did not appreciate the fact that he went to their father. We deal with this with children all the time. Don't be a tattletale, right? He was being, in a sense, a tattletale. The report of this young Joseph, could have his, his motives may have been mixed. Is this about righteousness? 
Is this about calling his brothers to a higher level of accountability and conduct and ethical conduct in their actions? Or is this about status? Is this about getting a leg up on his brothers? We're not really sure. We don't know because Moses doesn't say. And so we're left with some of these questions about his motives and how they possibly could be flawed. It reminds us that we often do the right thing, but we can do it for the wrong reasons. There's some ambiguity there. But Moses seems to be emphasizing the positive aspect. But we see that his brothers would be offended at his perceived self-righteousness. That's one of the, be- the not-so-good things about going to Presbytery is that usually it cuts into my sermon prep. And so I often feel like when, I'm, when I've you know, sent my, my outline to Cinda on Thursday before I leave, it seems rather incomplete to me. Like all of these thoughts really haven't quite com- completely gelled and connected and all of these fun kind of things. And actually, I forgot to send it to Cinda this week. Thankfully, she asked for it right before I left. So I had to turn my computer back on, you know, all that kind of stuff. But as we were sitting in the worship service on, uh, on thir- Friday morning prior to beginning our business in Presbytery, this is sort of the thought that came to my mind in terms of sin, how Jesus isn't like Joseph. Jesus does not bring report- bad reports about us to the Father. He is not like Joseph in this respect, although much about Joseph points us to Jesus. Jesus is not taking notes, handing them to the Father about our guilt and about our shame. What he speaks to the Father about is his own righteousness that is given to us. And so there is someone who tries to speak of our sin before the Father that is not Jesus, that is the accuser, the evil one, but Jesus stands as the righteous one and says, Father, they belong to me, you have given them to me, and my righteousness is theirs. Look upon their sin no more. May it be as far away from them as the east is from the west, because I have paid the price for their sin, and I have obeyed for them. Jesus is so much better than Joseph in this regard. So our faithfulness, though flawed, often creates this offense among the unfaithful. Verses 3 and 4 begins this escalation of what's going on. And that favoritism feeds negative feelings. Moses begins to give us more information about the the family dynamic, and this information is not going to be positive because we read this line, Israel loved Joseph more. Now, He loved Joseph's brothers, but he loved Joseph more than he loved his brothers. He commits the same sin as his father Isaac committed, that of favoritism. Genesis 25, we read, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Interesting. You'd think that if there's someone who's not going to choose a favorite son, it would be the one who was not chosen as the favorite son, Jacob. 
You'd think he who longed for his father's love would make sure that all of his sons were knew his love. And yet, he played favorites. He had a favorite son. And it was not a favorite son based upon their integrity. It was not a favorite son that was based upon any merit or worth in them. But the text says specifically that because he was the son of his old age. Now, this indicates to me that Benjamin was not born yet. Because Benjamin is the one who was really the son of his old age. Okay? But we have to wait a moment with Jacob and think with humility that we are far too often like him and we far too often participate in the sins of our fathers, our parents, that it is very hard for us, well, it's impossible for us apart from grace, to break the cycle of sin within our families. And Jacob didn't do that. And it really caused disruption in this holy family. It threatened to blow it to pieces. And one of the things that Jacob did precisely because of his fondness for Joseph is that he gave him a robe of many colors. And that's probably not the best translation. That's a translation that's based upon the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. What this was was not, not so much a brightly colored cloak, but actually a cloak that was very long, very long sleeves, and a cloak that went down to his feet, and a cloak that it may have had color, but the important part of it is, is that it was a cloak that you did not work in. He is setting Joseph apart from his brothers, basically as the supervisor. Okay? This is not made for manual labor. This is not made for going out in the fields and, you know, taking care of the sheep and shearing them and chasing them down. This is made for life among the tents. He is setting his brother, I mean, he's setting his son Joseph above all of his brothers. He's essentially saying that this is the one that is going to be the head of the family when I am gone. This makes me wonder if the whole uh, event of Reuben with the concubine is after this. If this was sort of Reuben's attempt to regain his position as the firstborn, well, you know, that's all speculative because Moses does not keep this in chronological order. But it's quite possible that it does because Reuben is the firstborn. He's supposed to be the one who leads the family, and yet... Jacob says, Joseph. He gives them the symbol of the wealthy man. He designates him, future head of the family. He has, in a sense, golden boy status. How many of you have ever been the golden boy? Has anyone ever been the golden boy? No? I was a golden boy once for a very short period of time. <laughs> When I was working in, uh, at RTS for my work-study positions, I worked in admissions for a little while, and for some reason I had achieved 
but through no effort of my own, really, golden boy status. I was the favored one. The, the director of admissions somehow smiled upon me, although I don't know why. That was until he asked me to create a computer pro data, database. Remember, this is the early 1990s. I had one call, uh, computer class in college, and I barely got through it. It was on BASIC. Okay, those of you who do anything with computers and programming, laugh at me right now, I know. Okay, because I barely, I, I just, I couldn't think like that computer program. It was just so counter to how my brain operated. Okay, that I couldn't, and here I am being asked to put together a database. Wrong guy, wrong project, golden boy status gone. <laughs> One of my other friends became the golden boy. <laughs> okay? But he has the golden boy status. What is the response of his brothers? They hated him. Not they hated their father the one who is actually creating the injustice. But this is so typical of human nature. We do not hate the one who does it, but the one who benefits from it. What we recognize here is that they are offended because he has their father's love in a way that they don't. They want that aspect of their... They all want to be first. They want to be the favored son, and so they hate the one who stands between. They hate the golden boy. We see this escalation that begins to take place. Their, hidden, their hatred is not a hidden hatred because it says they couldn't say anything nice to Joseph or about Joseph. It was the instance of whenever Joseph sort of came up in the family discussion, everything changed. That guy. I'm sure they, you know, when they're in the fields with the flocks, they're probably talking about Joseph. Can't wait till dad's gone and we can take care of Joseph. I can't stand Joseph. Can you stand Joseph? No, he's just such an arrogant, prideful guy. He's so self-righteous, you know. Can't believe he turned us into dad. You know, all of this kind of stuff. Rehearsing these wounds that have occurred. Feeding sort of the hatred that continues on. And, and I sort of understand this. Because when I, when I was at Ligonier, right before I left, my boss showed up to me and he said, Steve, I don't know what you did to make Walter so angry with you. But whatever it is, you better deal with it now. Because whenever your name comes up, he has nothing nice to say about you. That's what it was like for Joseph. Name comes up, everyone's disposition. Doesn't matter how good they were feeling, now they're feeling bad. They hated him. The family is disintegrating. Though they have been set apart by the grace of God, now they are far from holy. Let's step back for a moment again and let's kind of think about this. The work of Christ. What Jesus does is that He brings us to share in the Father's love for Him. He does not kind of stand as the favored son, keeping all of that to himself. But what Jesus did is he shares that with us. Because we are united with him by faith, the Father has the same love he has for his eternal son. He has that love for us. 
we have been brought in to that fatherly love. Not by virtue of our own goodness, rightness, intelligence. In that sense, because of Jesus, we all share golden boy status. Maybe on earth in your relationships you've never enjoyed being the golden boy. But Jesus makes us that. It is not as though God loves Ken more than he loves Randy. And that he loves Randy more than he loves Marty, whom he loves more than Dick, whom he loves more than Steve, and so on. He makes us all that cherished son, whether male or female. He makes us that cherished son through grace. And so the gracious love of the Father for us offends those who do not know that love. Let's get to the main part of this. 5 through 12, the bulk of the material. That God establishes the future despite our failings. Now, God is really in the background here. I mean, He's there. He's active. He's engaged. And and through the writing of the Scripture, He gives His assessment of the family. And in fact, through the dreams, He gives His assessment of the family. He gives Joseph two dreams. He plants the idea in his dreams. There's inception that takes place. These two dreams reinforce the same message. One of them has an agricultural background. The other has a celestial background. There's the common theme, and that common theme is bowing down to me. The fact that Joseph is going to rule over the house of Jacob. This is similar to the fact that Jacob has made him the number one son. But it goes beyond that because in the second dream we see that not only do the brothers bow before him, but we also see that Jacob himself and Joseph's mother, again, that's why I think she's still alive, they also bow down to Joseph in this dream. Insulting, isn't it? Not just if you're one of the brothers, but we see that even Jacob is a little put off by this. He's insulted by this, and initially he rebukes him, he admonishes him, he corrects him. But what we see in this is that God is raising Joseph up to deliver this infant Israel. Now, they have no idea about what is about to happen. Those of us who have read the Scriptures know what's going to happen, but they don't. They don't necessarily recognize the need for such a deliverer as God is about to provide for them. And Joseph, in this way, is directly pointing us to Jesus Because Jesus is going to be the appointed covenant head who is going to deliver his people, not just from famine, but from sin and death. Jesus is like Joseph, but greater than Joseph in this respect. It's insulting. Think about Luke 2 for a moment. And he said to them, referring to his family, Why were you looking for me? 
Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? The occasion of this is they had gone into Jerusalem for the Passover, and, and they all as a family kind of went back, and, and but they lost track of Jesus. They thought he was just with another part of the family or the friends, uh, you know, from Nazareth and was kind of back there, and they realize a few days out he's not around, and they're all frightened, and they find him at the temple, correcting the theology <laughs> of the scribes. But notice what to us would sound arrogant. I'm right where I belong, my father's house. It would be offensive. What God is doing to Joseph is offensive to his brothers because it is grounded in grace. And we see that Joseph may have actually been proud of this. After all, why is he telling them this? Why? What does he hope to gain by sharing the content of these dreams? But it is God who is the one who planted that idea there. But before Joseph is ready to take up his mantle, so to speak, as the head of this family, he must be shaped by suffering, just like Jesus was shaped by suffering. Hebrews 2. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect or mature through suffering. Joseph is going to learn obedience to God the hard way, through suffering. He's not going to just do the right thing. He's going to do the right thing for the right reason. The impurity is about to be removed. We don't have time to sort of explain all of this in Hebrews 2, but Jesus always did the right thing for the right reason. And yet, for us and for our salvation, he learned obedience through suffering. So, we recognize here, what's part of what's interesting, Joseph doesn't explain the dream to his brothers. Joseph doesn't explain the dream to his father. But they all know what the dream means. They're not clueless like the Egyptians, as we're about to see when Joseph goes into Egypt. They understand the meaning of dreams. The Egyptians, even though they had their magicians and everybody else, and supposedly they were diviners of these dreams, they are clueless in the face of some of these dreams, and it is Joseph that must tell them what they mean. God's setting up, again, this idea that Israel, superior, or or the God of Israel, is superior to the gods of the Egyptians, we're going to see. What happens? They hate him even more. Things with his brothers go from bad to worse. There are a couple reasons why I had that reading from the Old Testament this morning. And sometimes we forget all the reasons why, or reasons why it was a good reason that we didn't even think about when we chose it, so to speak. Who was older, Moses or Aaron and Miriam? Miriam and Aaron were older than Moses. They were offended at that point in time that Moses was set apart as special, they, they, they were angry 
that God had been gracious to Moses in a way that he hadn't been gracious to them. And they began to speak against their brother. And what we see is that same thing. God is being gracious to Joseph in a way that he is not gracious to them. They begin to speak against their younger brother. We see Jesus as the, as the appointed covenant head. And what happens? His brothers begin to speak against him. John 7, for not even his brothers believed in him. They mocked him in that passage. So, why don't you go down to Jerusalem and do some great stuff? In Mark 3, And when his family heard of it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. His family thought he was crazy. They were angry with him just as Joseph's family was angry with him. We can be just like them, struggling with authority. God appointed authority. Anyone here love being told what to do? Come on, be steady hand. Be steady hand. You know, we don't like it when we're kids, and we still don't like it when we're adults. There is a resentment to authority that is a function of, our, of the fall. It is only through God's grace that we learn how to properly submit to authority. And we try to teach our covenant children this. But we in the church must learn it as well, some of us as adults, how to submit to proper authority. It's very important. These brothers needed that lesson. (laughs) They'll get it the hard way later on. Okay? But note another thing. It ends on this note. Jacob kept the saying in mind. He did not disregard it completely. He did not dismiss it as stupidity. He is like Mary who treasured it. Luke 2, that same event of the Passover. And his mother treasured up... Oh, sorry, this is after the presentation in the temple. And his mother treasured all of these things in her heart. She thought about them. She went over them. We're all going to treasure things in our heart. It's a question of what we treasure. We could be like Joseph's brothers and treasure the offenses done to us. We can hang on to those things. We can have, um, as one sitcom have, had, uh, you know, the big book of all the times that he was wrong. We can have that in our brains, we can, in our hearts. We can, we can treasure up and consider all those things that have been done to us by other people. And if you do, you're going to become bitter. You're going to become resentful. You're going to be miserable. And no one's going to want to spend time with you. What ought to we be treasuring up in our hearts? The work of Christ for us. The facts, even as, as I kind of laid them out, that Jesus does not bring our bad report to the Father, but he brings his good report on our behalf. Treasure the reality of justification. 
Store it up. Think about it. Treasure the fact that we have the Father's love as treasured children. Store it up. Think about it. Think about the fact that Christ is the one who is our head, who is our Lord, but in such a way that is an expression of His love for us. These are some of the things that we need to treasure up so that we are set free from the power of sin, so that we are are able to move forward in sanctification precisely because we are resting in God's love for us. That we're practicing part of what it talked about in Ephesians 4, as you have been forgiven, forgive one another. You're not going to forgive anybody if you're not in a constant awareness of how much you have been forgiven by God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Are we treasuring up the hurts, the lies, or the truth? The gracious truth. So, dreams come, dreams go. I'm glad most of my dreams don't come to be reality. In fact, I had one with snakes in it last night. Glad it's not reality. Okay? But those that come to pass are those that God has put there for our good and for the good of others. Grace in the life of others, however, can often rub us the wrong way because we are sinners. It exposes the sin in our own hearts that's still there that needs to be pardoned by Christ. But He works for our good in spite of our own failings. The good that is in our lives is theirs precisely because He put it there. And here we see, if we pay attention, that Christ speaks to the Father about His righteousness for us instead of our sin. That Christ brings us into the Father's love. And that Christ is God's appointed covenant head for our salvation. And so, will we embrace these things? Will we treasure them in our hearts? Let's pray. Father, uh, We thank you for Joseph. For without Joseph, Israel would have been destroyed. But we pray especially, well, if Israel is destroyed, there is no Messiah. We thank you that Joseph also points us to Messiah, to Jesus, and what he would do for us to deliver us out of our guilt out of your wrath, and into your love. And so I ask that your Spirit would be at work in us, that we would indeed turn away from the sinful pattern of treasuring our hurts and our losses, that we might be renewed in our minds, contemplating and treasuring up the work of Christ that we might be transformed, that we might conform not to the world, but to Christ Himself. Father, we ask that You would do this because of Christ, in whose name we pray, Amen.